The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 256. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, at Brian McClanahan. Like my Facebook page, at Brian McClanahan. And, of course, subscribe to my YouTube page, where you can watch this podcast, at Brian McClanahan. If you don't want to search for all those social media accounts, just go to my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, McClanahan.com. You'll find all my social media buttons at the top of the page. While you're there, give me an email address, and I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and a free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. You can support The Brian McClanahan Show while you're there by clicking on that support tab at the top of the page. You can donate a few pennies or a few bucks, whatever you got, help keep the lights on, help keep the podcast going. You can also buy your book plates there if you've got one of my books and you want them autographed. You can buy a book plate, I'll autograph it, send it out in the mail. The best way to support The Brian McClanahan Show, though, is by going to mclanahanacademy.com. It's always free to enroll. That's mclanahanacademy.com. Free to enroll, you get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. And then, of course, I have seven courses available for purchase, uh, ranging from a five-lecture course on secession or the Declaration of Independence to a 54-lecture course on U.S. History to 1865, the second part of which is going to come out in about a month. So uh, you've got time to uh, enroll because when you do enroll, I will tell you this, those that do enroll do get the best deals on the classes when they come out. I mean, it is... You get discounts that nobody else gets. So you're going to want to be in uh, at McClanahan Academy. Get those emails for that as well and get those deals. So uh, it's a great way to support the show. Um, it's a great way to get an education that you didn't get in high school or college. I can guarantee you didn't get it uh, unless you uh, were lucky enough to have a professor that uh, was actually even-handed. And I'm going to talk about hysterical professors today, but it's a great way to help me as well keep this podcast going. Also, don't forget to click on that shop tab at the top of my page, brianmcclanahan.com. You can get all your Brian McClanahan Show logo, apparel, gear, whatever you want. Another great way to support the show and to advertise the show. And, of course, always leave a review at Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. Let people know you're listening to the show. Share it on social media. That's a great way to help organically grow the audience as well. So a lot of great ways to support the show, and I appreciate all your support. If you do have podcast ideas, send them my way because I do read them. I may not, again, I may not respond to your email, but I do read what you ask for. Now, today is under the category of hysterical professors. Now, hysterical in two ways. Hysterical, haha, because it is funny to read this piece, but it's also hysterical in terms of delusional. Now, I find it fascinating when people uh, have this severe angst about Donald Trump. Now, in the last episode, I talked about, did Donald Trump screw up America, or has he screwed up America? And I said, look, I mean, no more than any other president since George H.W. Bush. No more than any other president, really, since Richard Nixon. It just hasn't... You've had one long, continual slide into American monarchy. John C. Calhoun pointed out this would be the case. And he blamed it all on Congress. And it really is Congress's fault. Congress has punted its responsibility over and over again to check the power of the executive branch. But now that Trump is in office, you really do have this extreme derangement. It's hysterical. Uh, it's, it's bordering on the side of lunacy that these people are so upset about this. Uh, when clearly this has been going on for 
decades. And the fact is, the progressives, who are often the most hysterical about this, are the ones who created the problem. Look, uh, Calhoun in the 1800s said, we're we're sliding into this American monarchy. It's happening because Congress is punting its responsibility. But I would take virtually any one of those presidents in the 19th century over the current crop that we have with the powers they had in the 19th century, right? Because in the 19th century, the president still didn't have the powers that the president has today. The president has gotten powers today. It's acquired power essentially because they just do it and the Congress won't stop them. Now, uh, this particular political science professor points that out. But the problem is really nationalism. And that begins after the war. Because if everything is going to be national, if we're going to nationalize every political issue, and that's essentially what the, what the progressives of the time, who were the radical Republicans, wanted to do, they wanted to nationalize every issue. They wanted to nationalize the elections. If that's what's going to happen, then we're going to see this current contentious political climate. And there's a couple of things he says in here that I find very interesting and funny uh, because it's it's delusional, right? So the, the title of this piece is, I've taught U.S. government for 40 years. Thanks to Trump, I'm doubting the founder's plan. Thanks to Trump? I mean, let's just stop with that title, thanks to Trump. How about thanks to the first Congress? How about thanks to the first Congress in passing the first Judiciary Act, which essentially made it to where every law could be reviewed by the Supreme Court? For all of his faults, I was I, I was driving home yesterday, and I just turned on talk radio, I turned on the AM radio, and there was Rush Limbaugh running his mouth. For all of his faults and Rush Limbaugh, he did say something that was actually correct yesterday. And he said, look, the problem is every political issue goes to the Supreme Court, where we have nine politically appointed judges decide political issues. I mean, yes, because we've nationalized everything. We don't, we don't talk about, the, the Congress doesn't talk about, well, let's, let's debate this law and whether it's constitutional or not. Is it constitutional? Can we do this? Can we const- are we constitutionally able to pass this particular bill? It doesn't matter anymore. It's just passed, and then let the courts all sort it out. Well, that's not what the, the founding generation thought would happen. And it's clear that's not what they thought would happen <clears throat> because they debated whether bills were constitutional constantly. Now, those who were trying to rely on the Constitution often lost because the other side just wanted to ram stuff through. But regardless, they did talk about it. Uh, But that first Judiciary Act, which allowed for appeal of state decisions to to the federal court system, created all kinds of problems. Virginia tried to get rid of it. Virginia was at the vanguard saying, this is going to mess everything up. It's going to destroy the federal republic if we allow this to happen. And John Marshall smacked them down and Cohen's v. Virginia, right? I mean, so that was the final blow, which is why I say that Supreme Court decision, I write about it and how Alexander Hamilton screwed up America. Uh, it's, it's why that decision is so important because essentially what happened was Virginia was trying to say, all right, we're not going to allow anything to be appealed to the federal court. We're just going to keep our state court decisions here. We're going to be supreme within our sovereign area. These are not federal decisions. And so you have the Cohen's brothers who simply appeal onto the federal courts anyways. And Marshall says, yeah, I'll take that case. And Virginia, you can't do this. Well, that was part of the destruction of real federalism. So the founders' plan had been destroyed from the beginning. The first Congress, the first Congress, you're doubting the founders' plan? 
of, of, namely, the most important part of the Founders' Plan was that the states would have a supreme role in the government, right? I mean, they, the Senate was the state check on everything. You had states that had powers that were uh, that were supreme in their area. I mean, this is what Madison said. I mean, look, all the proponents of the Constitution said this. They all said that the general government only had the powers delegated to it in Article One, Section 8. It couldn't go beyond those powers when the Constitution was being sold to the states. And, of course, immediately the Congress goes back on its word. People start to bristle at this. You had a lot of people who were friends of the Constitution who were saying they were Federalists. Now they became Democratic Republicans. Why? Because they understood what was actually happening. The Federalists were not real Federalists. They were Nationalists. And Nationalism is the disease that's created the, the cancer that's led to Donald Trump. I mean, for all of his problems, and I said this in the email I sent out uh, yesterday, for all of his problems, Alexander Hamilton was correct about this. He said, look, let's just skip over all this nonsense and go right to an elected monarch because we're going to get it. We're going to get it. And uh, we should just have it now. Well, at the time, this was seen as lunacy, right? We're not doing that. We didn't, we didn't break away from the British Empire and have all these anti-monarchy treatises to say we're going to have one here. So no, we're not doing that. We're going to have a Republican institution, which is a Republican executive. We're going to get that. But Remember, the, the Philadelphia Convention sat in stunned silence when the executive was even proposed because there was a, a palpable fear that this could happen. Look, the founding generation, more than anything else, feared executive power. And so the founder's plan has been destroyed since Abraham Lincoln, right? Because uh, this is what Benjamin Robbins Curtis pointed out when Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation. Yeah, okay, I agree with that. We should end slavery. But the problem is, when you do it this way, what you have now done, of course, he wasn't abolishing slavery in anywhere in the North that he could actually potentially do it. But the problem is when you've done this, you're creating a situation where under the guise of subduing the enemy, the general government can do anything it wants. There is no constitutional restraint anymore. Lincoln essentially destroyed constitutional restraint from the executive, from the executive branch. I mean, you, you can't restrain power if you say we're at war, we can do anything we want. Why not? I mean, does, what kind of war do we have to be at? There was no declared war here. It was just an emergency. So because there's an emergency, the executive can do anything. So there's, there's an economic downturn. There's an emergency now. I can do anything I want. We've got uh, a, a, a moral crisis in America. We've got drugs. Well, that's an emergency. I can do anything I want to solve that problem. The executive then becomes the, the government. The founder's design, well, that's been gone a long time. Professor Baker. This is Ross Baker, a Rutgers professor. So let me read this piece. It's very short, but it's it's funny, right? So here we go. He says, I now hesitate to defend the genius of the framers. I no longer have confidence in the checks and balances they said would keep us on track. Oh. So let's begin to peace. The day after Labor Day, I will stand behind a lecturer in a lecture hall on the campus of Rutgers University and teach a chorus that I have taught for 40 years. I have always approached this first day eager to teach about the establishment of our republic and how government works today. In the past three years, the eagerness has curdled into apprehension as that I bait with myself how even-handed I should be in dealing with the national government that I can no longer recognize, much less approve of. 
first of all, we don't have a national government. I mean, here this is this is part of the problem with political science professors. We don't have a national government. We never did. The, if he's saying the genius of the founders or the framers, they didn't create a national government. They said as much. We're not creating a national government. No. In fact, they explicitly said they're not creating a national government. The House of Representatives was the national part of the government, but the rest of it, there's no national government here. And that was that was spelled out. So to say we have a national government, you already created a problem. You want to you want to solve the problem? Professor Baker, go back to federalism, which of course I don't think you would want to do because you would say, well, that's going to lead to racism and all. Well, of course it won't, but this is what you, we we can't do that. We we can't have we can't have a, a federal because because what would happen then? We would have all these problems that that we can't solve. Those people in in in, in another state might do something I don't like, and how are we going to take care of that problem? <gasps> that's the, that's the solution to all of this. I mean, it's quite simple. In fact, it's quite simple. It would be pointless for me to or boring for the students to spend the semester assailing President Donald Trump for casting public service as contemptible with unjustified disparagement of everyone from scientists at the Environmental Protection Agency to the chairman of the Federal Reserve. Oh my gosh, Donald Trump has attacked the Environmental Protection Agency. How, how bold, how renegade. This guy has simply attacked a federal bureaucracy. Oh my gosh, how contemptible to do these things. This is why I'm saying this piece is hysterical. So this is how establishment this guy is. Casting public service is contemptible. With unjustified disparagement for everyone from the scientists. So it's unjustified to critique scientists at the Environmental Protection Agency who frankly are hysterical at times and say things that aren't true and doctor data and all kinds of things. So you can't say anything bad about these people or the chairman of the Federal Reserve. My gosh, the Federal Reserve is the entire problem of the American economy. Of course, Trump is criticizing the Federal Reserve because he wants them to lower interest rates so we don't have a recession, so then he can't be blamed for it. And of course, this is the stupidity of American politics. But this is where this guy is. You can't criticize these things. Uh, I mean, this is unjustified disparagement. It's contemptible. And this would be boring for students to go through that. Well, I agree. I mean, look, part of the problem with, with government classes and history classes is that all we focus on is race, class, gender. And the fact is everyone's tired of all that nonsense. They're tired of SJW nonsense. Right? His contaminating influence has even spread beyond the executive branch to transform the United States Senate, an institution that I have long revered into a pitiable amen corner that either assents to his most outrageous statements or passively cringes in silence. Ugh. So now the Senate, see, he's not, not pointing to the House. Why doesn't he point to the House? Because the House is doing things that he likes. You see, so the House is not the problem. The House is passing something stupid like the Green New Deal or some of the other nonsense they've actually uh, looked at. I mean, they didn't pass the Green New Deal, but even proposing the Green New Deal, some of these stupid things they've done, that's that's okay. But the Senate, the check, which has checked, frankly, the stupidity of the House, um, though, I mean, we can say the Senate hasn't done everything they should do. They should have been checking this unconstitutional massive spending bill. 
that uh, have full of pork and other things that Donald Trump signed. That's really what we should be talking about. But no. No, we're talking about a man and his Twitter account. This is what it comes down to. A man and his Twitter feed. Right? Uh, in fact, I saw a, a headline. Trump hit, has 100 tweets over the holiday weekend. Oh, my gosh. I mean, this would be like a daily occurrence, occurrence for some of the people on Twitter. They send out 100 tweets in an hour. I mean, because this is how they converse with everybody. It's, I mean, it's, it's absolutely insane. But this is what people do now. So if the president does it, I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, look, Twitter is narcissism, the highest level of it. But regardless, uh, this is where we are, right? So this is what he says. I am now hesitant defending what I used to refer to as the genius of the framers of the Constitution because I no longer have confidence in the checks and balances that James Madison assured us were auxiliary precautions to prevent our government from going off the rails at times when the wisdom of the American people is faulty. Now, um, so this was a suspicion of democracy. All of the founding generation had it. In fact, uh, the Constitution was supposed to be anti-democratic in many ways. The checks and balances uh, that Madison talked about, and of course he's pointing to uh, Federalist 51, um, there, was a, there was a fear that this would become a national government, that the executive branch would run roughshod over everything else, that the central government would run, would run roughshod over the states. So yes, there were checks and balances. But it wasn't just the wisdom of the American people is faulty, no, it was when the general government went over its power, when it went beyond its delegated powers. It wasn't just the wisdom of the American people. I mean, this is where these people get, get a little bit, um, they're, they're wrong in how they're characterizing the general government. I mean, they're, they're trying to put, put democracy, quote unquote, into a national, quote unquote, government, a national democracy. It's not what we have. This is the entire problem with the system. The faultiness of that wisdom is, in my mind, on vivid display by the man they chose to lead the nation. Again, lead the nation. No, we don't have a national government, dumb cough. And who chose Donald Trump? The states, the Electoral College. But regardless, here's where we are. It is hard for me now in discussing the voting behavior of Americans to grasp what kind of desperation prompted so many of my fellow citizens to choose and now enthusiastically support a man who has degraded the office of the presidency. Oh my gosh, how dare him? He's degraded it. He hasn't gone far enough in my estimation. I mean, Trump could have done all kinds of things. It could have been a hot tub party in the Oval Office. He could have gilded the, I mean, look, he really wants to degrade the thing. I, I mean, that would be fantastic because it needs to be degraded. We don't have a king. This guy is actually acting like we have a king and Donald Trump has come in and just ruined the monarchy. I mean, we should be genuflecting to the president, bowing. Yes, Mr. Pre yes, yes, uh, your highness, your high mightiness. This is what John Adams wanted, your high mightiness. We should, be, we should be genuflecting to that man. No. Good he's degraded the office of the presidency. We don't need an elected king. Thank goodness. This is one of the things I could say. If, if Donald Trump achieves that, I mean, look, he should just dish it, put a hot tub right in the Oval Office, have all the cheerleaders come over that he had in that video, gild the executive office, and just say, we're going for it. If we're going to degrade the thing, let's degrade it. 
I mean, do it. Don't 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 uh, go halfway here. Go ahead and do it. And Trump still, I mean, and the Twitter feed is where people point to. Again, it's his Twitter feed. This is what people are upset about. How can American citizens in whom sovereignty resides have acted so irresponsibly? How could they do it? You see the hysterical nature of this. This is an opinion piece in uh, the USA Today, right? This is in the USA Today. It's basically uh, a personal emotional rant. It's an emotional rant. This is emotivism on display. This is what I've talked about before. These people don't think logically. They're thinking emotionally, hysterically. They're hysterical. They're delusional. They're hysterical. I will grant, however, that the alternative was not a good one. He probably wanted Bernie Sanders. But that also speaks to serious flaws in the system. So, um, what serious flaws? I mean, he doesn't go into those. I have searched for historical examples to reassure students and myself. I have to reassure myself. I mean, you can just imagine this guy, this professor, who's who's uh, who's actually been, uh, you know, a, a, he's had all kinds of positions. He's served in the Senate as a Senate historian, all kinds of things. But you can imagine him, despondent, searching for himself. Oh, gosh, please, can I find a historical example? Uh, you can imagine the stupidity here. I mean, it's on display that we have sometimes made poor choices in the men we have elected president, but that the damage they have inflicted on the country was slight and things turned out all right. I've tried to fight this. Ah. I find it harder these days to use these historical examples. I find it hard because they were part of a different time in which partisan strife was not so intractable. And there are individuals who enjoy universal respect to whom we could turn to help right the ship. Really? Partisan strife was not so intractable? You mean like 1860? I mean, when people were shooting at each other, 1861, when people started shooting at each other? How about back before that, when uh, we had almost yearly discussion of secession? You're talking about that time when partisan strife was not so intractable? Uh, when people were being called all kinds of names under the sun? Yeah, since 1865. Uh, well, I mean, are you talking about Reconstruction as well? If you look at the divide in the United States politically during Reconstruction, during much of the time you had the South and then you had the North. So Southerners have long thought this, I mean, we, we, political strife is intractable, right? I mean, we're, we're being abused all the time in the South, they say, would say, Southerners would say. So uh, this is hilarious to me. I mean, I'm glad this guy doesn't teach history because he doesn't know it. Recently, people looked, hopefully, on the prospect of William Barr as attorney general, only to see him mutate into a stooge for the president. I, I don't know who. I, William Barr is going to say is going to save the government. Uh, OK, I mean, this this is hysterical. Again, this is the hysterics behind this person. More distressing even than lacking good people to restore the nation, such as in the aftermath of Watergate and Richard Nixon's resignation. So wait, wait a second here. The people that follow Richard Nixon restored things? Are you serious? Restore the nation. There's that term again. I don't think you know what that, you're using that term, but I don't think you know what that actually means. Uh, The nation has been failure of those exiting the Trump administration to speak openly about the mismanagement, capriciousness, and veniality of the president and his entourage. Many individuals who spoke privately about Trump's ignorance and caprice, such as former Secretary of State Rex Tillerson, slunk 
in silent retirement without getting on the record their obvious contempt for Trump. Even the vaunted truth teller, Defense Secretary James Mattis, whose departure was attributed to policy differences with the president, has not aired those differences so that the public could be able to evaluate those ver- the version or whose version was more credible. Um, yeah, if we got to rely on Rex Tillerson and James Mattis, James Mattis, uh, look, the guy had a problem with Trump because he wasn't, um, he wasn't a, a war hawk. I mean, look, Trump has shown war hawk tendencies, but he wasn't a war hawk like James Mattis was. Trump is picking these neoconservatives to be in different positions because the neoconservatives, they're like, they're like, a, they're like leeches. They just hang on in Washington, D.C. And they, and they, anybody that comes in that's an R, they're going to, oh, oh, we got these people here, put them in. The, so then they work against. I mean, for all the things Trump has done and all the things he's not, he, look, Trump had a problem. He, I'm not so certain he really expected to win when he launched his campaign because if he did, he didn't have the right people in place that were of like mind. And even the people that were of like mind got out because of all the neoconservatives that he had to bring in. I mean, you've got a huge bureaucracy to staff. And the neoconservatives, I mean, they are a cancer. And they are a cancer. They're leeches. Pulling my punches on Trump. This is how he concludes. Few of our past presidents were wholly conversant with constitutional law, but most seem to be wary of the electrified wires of the system of separation of powers that define limits they dare not transgress. Really? Most seem to be wor- Really? I mean, who? Who seemed to be wary of that? Certainly not Obama, certainly not George W. Bush, Bill Clinton, George H.W. Bush, Ronald Reagan. I mean, Jimmy Carter uh, was, again, one of the, but even Carter did some things wrong. Uh, Reagan, he often, well, he was conservative, he transgressed power. How about, how about, uh, you know, uh, Gerald Ford, Richard Nixon? I mean, these people were worried about the uh, elect, electrified wires of the system of separation of powers that define limits they dared not transgress. I mean, we could just go back all the way through the 20th century. Um, you know, Lyndon Johnson, certainly not concerned about it. John F. Kennedy, Dwight Eisenhower, certainly not too concerned about it. Right? Uh, you know, Harry Truman, Franklin Roosevelt, nope, none of those people. Not concerned about Herbert Hoover, no way. Maybe Calvin Coolidge. Maybe Calvin Coolidge. And I, and I actually credit Calvin Coolidge, so there's one. Uh, but even he did a couple of things wrong. Uh, Warren G. Harding, you could say maybe the same thing about Harding. Woodrow Wilson, certainly not. Uh, Taft, no. Teddy Roosevelt, no. William McKinley, maybe a little bit. But I mean, you could just keep going back. And we're going to find all these presidents that certainly were concerned about the stuff. Now, when you get to the 19th century, I can say. But in the 20th century, no. Abraham Lincoln, nope. Andrew Jackson, nope. I mean, we could just do this all day. Uh, so there, there's been maybe a handful of presidents who are interested in the separation of powers. John Tyler, certainly. Grover Cleveland, yes, but only a handful. Attributing to President Trump the most innocent interpretation of abuses of power, such as the recent order to American companies to leave China, has been exposed. He has been exposed a constitutional imbecile. Um, now, uh, I mean, look, yeah, Trump, 
has no regard for the Constitution, but knows anybody, neither does anybody else. <laughs> Barack Obama, I mean, we'll just go back one president. Obama had no regard for the Constitution, ever. So what's the difference? This is the thing. What's the difference between Donald Trump and Barack Obama? The difference is one's an R and one's a D. This professor would not be writing this piece if Barack Obama was in office and did the exact same thing. He wouldn't write it. Guarantee. If Barack Obama had issued an order to American companies, you need to get out of China, Professor Baker would not have penned a piece in the USA Today saying, I'm worried about the, the future of America. I'm worried about it. I'm worried about this. It's because these people are hysterical because they are delusional. They're deranged. More ominously, he is a man with dictatorial tendencies. Really? I mean, like the other ones before him didn't have those things? Obama, I have a pen and I'll use it. I have a phone and a pen and I'll use it. Is that not a dictatorial tendency? That exceed even those of past presidents most contemptible, uh, most contemptuous of checks and balances. He has elevated the Second Amendment's protection of gun ownership to a level above the First Amendment's protection against the abridgment of freedom of press. Really? He has? Um, okay. <laughs> so, hmm, that, that's an interesting statement. I'm not so certain where he gets that. And, his, and he tempers, tempers dangerously with the 14th Amendment's clear message on birthright citizenship. And this is, this is a guy that now teaches. Look, the 14th Amendment uh, didn't give birthright citizenship. That was the Supreme Court that created that out of thin air for the 14th Amendment. Um, nobody said that. In fact, it was explicitly pointed out when the 14th Amendment was going through the process of being approved in Congress. That was not going to be the case. There was not going to be birthright citizenship for foreigners. They explicit, explicitly, explicitly excuse me, stated this. So, ultimately, Baker concludes, ultimately, I will pull my punches because I don't want to come across as a scold. What's this? I don't want to come across as a scold. And I will temper my words because I don't want to give my students the idea that all is lost. It would truly be the worst message of all. I mean, how funny. How hysterical. How utterly myopic and emotional. And not just that. Stupid. But, hey, uh, Baker's been there 40 years. He just think he's got his PhD from the University of Pennsylvania. He's a distinguished professor, and so this is a bright guy who doesn't know anything about history. I mean, it's, it's clear, right? So this is where, when you send your kids off to Rutgers, this is what they're getting in their political science class. Now, he's going to pull his punches. He's not, I'm, I'm sure. I would love for someone to actually record his lectures and see what he actually says. Uh, in there now, of course, when you do that, uh, you have to have permission to uh, to do so. Uh, but I'd love to see what he actually says. Does he, does he really pull his punches? I mean, what does he actually say about American government? Um, so this these would be this would be a fun exercise. But chalk that up to professors, and this is where think locally, act locally comes in again, folks, ladies and gentlemen, because here you have a situation where federalism would solve all this problem. If this guy could just think like a federalist, he would say, well, you know what, I really don't care what happens. I'm, I'm going to worry about New York. And as long as we've got a system where the general government is not abusing its powers, and not just the president, but the general government entirely, then we're okay. And so those powers would be commerce and defense. That's it. I mean, that, that's all we got here. So we can handle things in New York. We can have the, the highest taxes in the United States other than California. We can do that in New York, and that's good. And, and New York can govern like New York, and then everyone else can govern like everyone else. But um, 
Some of the things he says in there are just curious and not based on any historical precedent whatsoever. All right. Well, that's it for this episode of the Brian McDonald Show. I'll see you next time.